Hello, and welcome to Wicked Wednesdays, your weekly podcast on sex and sexuality, with an emphasis on BDSM kink and poly relationships. I'm your host, Wicked Fellow, and this week I'll be answering some questions about our last episode about non-toxic masculinity, especially about dealing with stress. And we're going to talk about origins, how I got started in the scene, how I got started making porn, that kind of thing. Just some viewer questions that I get all the time. Before we get started, I want to send a very special welcome to Mia, our latest Patreon supporter. Thank you very much and welcome to our little family. I just posted a Patreon update. I've been trying to do those every week just to give some more background, some behind the scenes stuff, little teaser on what we're going to be doing. Obviously, I need to start doing that before I record the podcast, but needs must. And I want to expand that and show more of the things that Katja and I do on our own. We posted a recent trip that we had, and I want to start doing more of that kind of stuff on the Patreon, as well as do some movie discussions and some other fun stuff, trying to make that a more exciting and fun place to be. Your feedback is always welcome, especially you Patreons, of course. And help me make that the best space I possibly can for you as I try to figure out how that platform works. I cannot thank you guys enough for your support. It really helps me get these podcasts out. If you would like to be a Patreon subscriber, supporter, head over to our website at wickedfellow.com. You can find all of our links there. The Patreon site is there. YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff. And of course, our adult sites. My voice is a little ragged this week. I don't know if that's because I did a bunch of yard work or I've been working in the wood shop or because I've already recorded today. But I will try to get through this with your guys' help. And sadly, I don't have my drink because I'm all out of mixers, and I think sitting here with a glass of straight whiskey, which is not a terrible idea, I want to make sure that I'm coherent by the end of it. So I did get some good feedback on the last episode, which I always enjoy. The more feedback I get from you guys, the more questions and comments, it really helps shape the podcast and gives me a lot to talk about, which is rather important when you sit in front of a camera for an hour and do a podcast. So on the questions I got from last week's show, and I did get a lot of feedback on that episode, which I really appreciate, it helps me a lot when you guys write and have comments and questions about the episodes because that lets me know I'm reaching you. It lets me know that what I'm speaking to you about is interesting and possibly helpful. Some of the comments on that episode were along the lines of, you should be very wary about taking mental health medication because I personally had a bad experience with mental health medication. And I'm in no way discounting that experience. And I'm not saying that it's going to work perfectly for everyone or that every medication is going to work perfectly for everyone. But people are also deathly allergic to penicillin sometimes. Just because one individual has a bad experience with a medication or a particular medication doesn't work for them, doesn't mean that they don't work in general. So I don't want people to be deterred from seeking out the mental health that they need because another person had a bad experience with it. It may not have worked well for them, the dosage may not have worked well for them, or that particular drug may not have worked well for them, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. I know that Katja, for example, had to go through a fairly long process of finding the right medication at the right dosage to give her the mental health that she needed. That's a very common experience when you are starting these drugs, whether it's an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. 
you do often have to get the dose dialed in just right. And that can only be done with a trained mental health professional. Another kind of thread in this was that I think people got the idea that I was just saying, go out and take pills, which is not what I was saying at all. This has to be done under the guidance of a professional, someone that can prescribe for you, that understands what you need and can supervise your medication properly. They are the ones that can see if it's working for you. They can see that if they need to up the dose or decrease the dose or try different medication altogether, all of that has to be done under the care of a licensed professional mental health you know, physician or psychiatrist, etc. I'm not saying just take a grab bag of pills and see what works. That's not what I'm saying at all. On that same front, when you are taking an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication and you want to stop taking it for whatever reason, it can be very dangerous to just stop taking the drug. These medications often have to be drawn down. You steadily decrease the dosage and that should be done again under the care of a licensed physician or a psychologist or a professional that can help you with this in a far more exacting and more professional way than I can. You know, I'm here saying we need to destigmatize seeking mental health treatment. I'm not prescribing for you and I'm not the one that can tell you whether or not a certain drug is going to work for you. That's entirely between you and a mental health professional. But if you do, for whatever reason, have to stop taking these, make sure that you do that under the guidance of the person who prescribed them to you. Don't just stop, because a lot of these can have fairly severe side effects if you quit cold turkey versus drawing down your dose under professional care. So yeah, along those same lines, something that I've seen personally in my life is say someone is taking an antidepressant and they start to feel normal again, they start to feel better, they're very tempted to then stop taking their antidepressant because they don't need it, right? They're feeling better. And often what is helping them, what is helping them feel better, what is getting them back on that level ground is the medication. And so they have this kind of yo-yo effect where they start to feel better on the drugs, they stop taking the drugs, they start feeling awful again. Remember that these things tend to be something you continue to take. It's not like a Tylenol, where you have a headache, you take a Tylenol, the headache goes away, you stop taking the Tylenol. These work very differently. And if the drugs you're taking to help balance your mental health are working, you do need to continue to take them until your physician or your psychiatrist tells you to stop taking them. Let's rely on the professionals for this. My role is to encourage you to seek that help. My role is to destigmatize seeking mental health care and to destigmatize these drugs because yes, for some people they don't work and for some people they may have bad outcomes or side effects that they really don't want to live with. And I understand that. That should not stop you from seeking out mental help, including mental health medications that might help you. Just to be clear on all that, for those of you out there that have tried this and it didn't work for you, you know, I'm sorry. I wish that you had gotten more relief from whatever care you sought. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that all antidepressants are bad and all antipsychotics are bad or all anti-anxiety medications are bad just because it didn't work for you personally. Other people have received life-saving help by taking these drugs. 
So yeah, like I said, I did get a lot of feedback on this episode. It might be the most feedback I've gotten on an individual episode. You know, some of the commentary I got was very positive and people said that, you know, these techniques worked for them or stuff that they'd done in the past or that they would try it. I cannot guarantee that the techniques that I use to deal with my stress and depression and anxiety are going to work for you. Just like I can't guarantee you that the anti-anxiety medication one person takes will work for you. I know that the techniques that I prescribed in my last episode work for me. They definitely help me get through the really rough times that I have. I hope that some of them can work for you. And I will be talking about more ways of dealing with your mental health, dealing with your anxiety and your depression and your stress, healthy ways of doing that. But as I said in the last episode, all these things can be tools, but they're just one tool. And the tool that works for you might be mental health counseling. It might be an anti-anxiety medication or anti-depression medication, etc. So don't despair if you try the stuff that I talked about and it just doesn't work well for you. I had quite a bit of other commentary saying that, you know, this is new age nonsense and just willing your way through it isn't going to work. I feel like I addressed that, but again, these are tools. These are techniques. These are things that work for me and hopefully they can work for some of you as well. The main message I wanted to put in that last episode is let's destigmatize this. Let's destigmatize seeking help because I think that seeking help is the first step to living a better life to having better mental health, to understanding that sometimes you cannot just work your way through it. You cannot just will your way through stressful events and hard times. So I wanted to answer some questions in this episode that I get quite a bit. And one of those is, how did you get started in the kink BDSM scene? How did you get start doing this weird alternative lifestyle? And we had an episode when Kachi was on and we talked about how she got started. We didn't really get into how I got started in that episode. And I don't know if I can give you an event or a singular moment when I became part of this lifestyle. I think the closest I can come to this is some early sexual experiences I had where there were elements of DS play or kink play involved, though at the time, neither I or my partner had any idea that we were doing something kinky or that we were doing something that was BDSM related. I think a lot of that is growing up the way that I did. I did not have a lot of exposure to the kink BDSM scene. I had no idea what it was. Obviously, the kink and BDSM scene far predates me. It goes way, way back. But as far as popular media, I don't remember seeing any depictions of it as far as, you know, movies or books or magazines. I don't know when I even learned the term kink or BDSM or that something was kinky. So yeah, early on, I think I was doing some kinky things or some BDSM related things, but I had no idea that they were kink and BDSM related. I didn't know that was a thing. And it's only in hindsight that I can look back and say, oh, well, that, that was a very kinky thing to do, but we did not do it for kinky reasons. We did it for kind of practical reasons. And... I don't think it was until I was probably in my early 20s. I know that I was already in the military and I had met somebody when I lived in California and they were heavily into an established kink and BDSM scene. And it wasn't until I started seeing them and they started explicitly asking for things that were very kink and BDSM related 
that I started to understand that, oh, so this is a thing. This is something that people are into. And through that relationship, I was introduced into an actual kink and BDSM scene, like going to a party that was specifically kinky and BDSM based. So it was kind of a, I guess I have natural inclinations towards this lifestyle and natural inclinations towards a hierarchy in a relationship by choice. But yeah, it probably was not until I was in my t early 20s that I learned that there was such a thing as, oh, this is a scene. This is something that people do. From that point on, I felt very comfortable in that scene. I felt very comfortable in that lifestyle. As I've mentioned before on podcasts, I don't really have any strong kinks. I don't really have any things in the BDSM world that really turn me on specifically. You know, I'm not really into spanking for spanking's sake. I'm not into leather and I'm not into bondage in and of itself. That doesn't really stir anything in me any more than normal sex would. I can take or leave almost all of these things. What's always been the most attractive thing for me in kink is the fulfillment that my partner gets out of whatever kinky game we're playing, out of whatever BDSM-based game we're playing. So if I have a partner that's really into spanking, then spanking can be very exciting to me. Then I can get turned on just thinking about spanking with that partner. But if I had a partner that wasn't into spanking, didn't like spanking, or was a big turnoff to them, it would not be fulfilling to me. It would not turn me on to think about doing that with them. And that's just how I'm wired. My, the way my personality works is that I truly need my kinky partner to be into whatever it is we're doing. And the more they're into it, the more that turns me on. So it's the relationship itself, that power dynamic relationship, that in and of itself is very attractive to me. That really turns me on. The idea of choosing to submit to somebody, that's a big turn on for me. So when I have a kinky partner and they're really into submission and that really gives them pleasure and they enjoy it and they get excited by it, I love that. But if I had a vanilla partner, and I've had many vanilla partners since I joined the kink community, if they don't like to play BDSM, then we just don't play. And I never have a longing to play with them because it's not one-sided. I can't get off by just spanking them or tying them up or whatever the kink is. It just doesn't do anything for me. So while I've been in the scene consistently for a very long time now, and I've had a lot of experiences, I've had a lot of partners, I've played in, you know, a lot of different situations that ranged from being very extreme and public kink where there's actual, you know, sex going on or really intense flogging or really intense bondage, etc. And that is fun and it's exciting and I enjoy being in that that scene all the way down to meeting someone that's just barely interested in kink and we do a little light spanking and that's the most extreme thing they've ever done i've been able to enjoy the entire journey and enjoy wherever i'm at with my partner in that so yeah i got started essentially because i met somebody in the scene they introduced me to the formal bdsm and kink scene and since then it's just been part of my life I don't feel like I'm really jaded by it. I still do enjoy the whole kink experience. I enjoy the alternative lifestyle part of it. 
I enjoy that there is still some taboo associated with it. Though for me, you know, obviously doing what I do and having as much experience in the kink scene as I do, the notion that it's taboo for me is something that I kind of have to remind myself of. I do have to be careful in conversation with normal vanilla people that, you know, they don't share the same ideas on what non-kinky sex is or what taboo is. Because again, for me and the, the people that I associate with mostly, for us, what is racy is at a very high level compared to what for most people is racy. And I do feel a disconnect with a more vanilla crowd in that sense. I think that there might be a little bit of a danger for people that have been in the kink scene for a very long time, you know, 20 plus years. It can be difficult to get the same thrill as the first few times you did it. Because again, it's such a part of your lifestyle and that taboo factor isn't really part of your lifestyle anymore. For some people, that means they kind of get on this escalation ladder where they're always chasing the, the bigger, more extreme thing. And that's never really been an issue with me. I, I truly enjoy whatever I'm doing with whoever I'm doing it with based on their enjoyment of it. So it's very easy for me, you know, even again, as I said, if I'm starting over with someone that's barely done kink before, those first initial scenes with them are very exciting and very fun for me, even though it's very tame compared to things that I've done in the past. So that, that works very well for me. We'll probably have an episode on, you know, keeping that fire, keeping that spice in your kinky life if you've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. And I'd love to have some other experienced kinksters on to talk about how they keep things fresh, what new games they play, what new experiences they try. And while even though Koch and I between us, it feels like we've done everything there is to do in the kink world, I know that's not true. There are certainly things that neither of us have done that might be fun to experiment with. But, you know, on the whole, we're, we're fairly satisfied with what we do and how we do it. I know that Koch would love to do more, and I, I would like to do more as well. Kink is one of those things where it can be the first thing that drops off of your list when you're under stress or you're very busy or life is kind of handing you a bunch of lemons at the same time. It can be hard to get the energy and get the excitement and get the drive to go do the kinky stuff because you know, it takes work and it's out of the ordinary. It's very easy to not do it. It's a lot like exercise. And I've noticed that, you know, especially lately, as busy as I've been and as much stress as I've been under, I haven't been exercising. Well, I also haven't been doing kinky stuff. So it does take a bit of dedication and a bit of drive to keep doing it. And to get in there and remember, oh yeah, this is really fun. I really enjoy this thing and we should do it more often. That would be tip number one on how to keep your kinky lifestyle fresh and fun is keep trying it, keep doing it. Don't let it go to the back burner all the time. And that's advice that I definitely need to take myself. When I got started, at least where I got started, there wasn't any sort of formal process of learning the ropes, as it were, not to be too cliche, the classes that are available now, the online seminars, the online tutorials, the, the resources like this podcast didn't really exist back in the 90s when I first got into kink. And so a lot of what I learned, a lot of what I did, a lot of what I figured out along the way it's just been through experience. It was just through, oh, this is how you do this. This is how this is done. I've heard about this thing from this other person. 
but it wasn't nearly as easy to learn about new things and improve your abilities, improve your, say, shibari tying. It was hard to find those resources. So, you know, in some ways, we're very lucky that we can go on YouTube and see really good shibari tying tutorials, for example. And the resources are much more prevalent than they were back in the 90s. You know, looking back, I now know that there were good resources. I think they were just very hard to find. They were fairly inaccessible. The internet really wasn't the thing. And as you know, the internet changed everything. So learning how to be a dom for me, learning how to be good at being a dom, was essentially a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of making mistakes, understanding those mistakes, getting better learning from my experiences as best as I could. And I don't think I really started studying the art of being a dom until I was much older. I think I started to look at what I did for fun in a more serious way, in a more mentoring way, in a more, you know, not quite academic, but I certainly started to think about what I was doing more. You know, my early kink and BDSM experiences were literally just that. They were experiences. I would be playing with someone, they would ask me to do something, and I would do it, and we would see if it would work. Or I'd have an idea, and we'd try that. Being a dom in and of itself, I don't remember, I couldn't really put a finger on the first time I felt like I was this person's dominant. Like, for Katya and I, it's very clear. We entered into this relationship... And from the very beginning, it was clear that she wanted me to be her dominant. I wanted her to be my submissive. But by that time, I had been doing that for 10 or 15 years. I think in the beginning, it was very gradual and it was very natural. I don't remember having those discussions on, I'm going to be your dom now. And we didn't really talk about the limits of that power. We didn't talk about, you know... A lot of the things that I recommend that you guys talk about when you want to enter into a DS relationship, I didn't really know that was a thing. I didn't understand that that was an important thing. It was kind of, I'd be with a submissive person and we would naturally form a dominant and submissive relationship. And there wasn't a lot of discussion around that. I do remember the first time that I had a formal dom-sub relationship where we entered into it, we talked about it, we had a contract, and that was kind of a watershed moment. That was when I was like, this is serious stuff. This isn't just play. This is something that I want to take seriously. I don't want to just kind of wing it. I want there to be established rules, and I want there to be an established method for this relationship. And I do remember that, and that was a very exciting and new thing for me. Because again, before that had been all flying by the seat of my pants, playing with different people, enjoying different scenarios. But I do remember the first time I entered into a formal dom-sub relationship. And from that point, that changed the way I approached DS. That was definitely a catalyst towards, I should take this more seriously because the feelings and the relationships and the emotions involved in this DS relationship are not trivial. They can be very profound, especially for the subservient. And I think I realized at that point how important it was for me as a dominant to take it seriously and strive to be the very best dom I could be. So being in that formal dom-sub relationship raised the stakes, and it made it more important to me to be a better dom. I do remember that. It was probably about 15 years ago, I would guess. 
when I started thinking about it more, I started reading more, more, there was more available to me online. I remember that Tumblr was a very good resource and a very surprising resource when I got onto Tumblr and I realized that there was so much kink related content on Tumblr and it was presented in such a beautiful fashion. I think that was, that was probably the catalyst that made me think, oh, I want to be a really good dom. I want to study this. I want to read philosophy on being a dom. I want to read what other people think is good dom behavior and what is bad dom behavior and how to properly care for and manage a submissive and be a good dominant to that submissive. Yeah, before Tumblr got sanitized by being sold to Yahoo, it was a great resource and a lot of you will remember those Tumblr days. I'm sorry for my voice. I don't know quite why I'm having such a hard time tonight. But so Tumblr was definitely a catalyst. I remember seeing so many beautiful depictions of BDSM on Tumblr. And that inspired me to want to create content like that. I wanted to make pictures like that. I wanted to be in that world of BDSM. And that definitely gave me a catalyst to become a better Dom. And from that, I started really thinking about it and studying it examining my approach to domination very closely, thinking about relationships that I'd had, things that had gone well and things that hadn't gone well, good and bad experiences, etc. And from that, I kind of codified my own personal dom philosophy, which I hope is still growing. I don't feel in any way, shape or form like I have reached a pinnacle and now it's just my job to disseminate, you know, godly dom behavior. I don't believe that at all. I know that I still have a lot to learn. I still have a lot of way to go to becoming a better Dom myself. But I am at a position where I've done a lot. I've had a lot of bad experiences, things that didn't work out, and a lot of good experiences. And I'm at a point where I do feel like I can give good advice. And I'm also fortunate enough to know what I don't know. So when I get asked something that is beyond my scope, I have no problem saying I'm not experienced in that. I don't know how to answer that question or help you with that problem, but maybe this direction. So yeah, I want to continue and learn. I want to continue and grow. I want to continue to, you know, hone my abilities as a dominant. Very long-winded way of saying I got invited to a kinky party and that kind of opened the door for me. And from there I ended up here where I'm creating a podcast almost every week on how to do BDSM and kink safely, smartly, sanely, and consensually. That's our goal. Moving into how I ended up doing pornography, which this one is pretty cut and dry. About five or six years ago, I had a very bad back injury, you know, to the point where since that time, I've had about five or six back surgeries, some of them very extensive to reconstruct my spine. But there was a time when I was almost completely debilitated. I was not able to do the work that I had been doing my entire life up until that point. And the future looked very grim for me at that point in my life because working with the VA, the Veterans Administration, where I had my care, they did provide the surgeries, which were life-saving for me, but that's all they provided. There was no rehabilitation really and there was no support financially after that so they fixed my back and they sent me home and from that point it was on me to figure out what i was going to do and you know i've been doing hard physical jobs my entire life it's really all i knew how to do and i knew that for at least the better part of a year i was not going to be able to do anything very physically demanding 
And so there was a point where I was like, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to find an office job somewhere? I really can't sit down for long periods of time. I can't go work in cabinetry and construction trades as I've been doing my whole life. You know, I don't have a degree. What exactly am I going to do with my life? And during that time, the partner that I was living with at the time, we had filmed ourselves having sex on a number of occasions, but we had done it for our own kind of fun and benefit. And so we were both fairly comfortable doing that. We enjoyed that process and we enjoyed watching those videos. It was really sexy for us. But what really started the snowball going down the hill was people often think I'm joking when I say I got into pornography because I posted a cat video on YouTube, but that is exactly how it happened. You know, I had taken a short cat video. It was my partner's cat and dog, roughhousing and being silly. 30 second video, put it on YouTube just for giggles. And within a couple of days, I was contacted by an animal compilation video site. And they said, hey, we saw your video. We'd like to pay you for it, etc." Initially, I thought this was a scam. I thought it was, you know, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you want to pay me for this video. But needing money desperately, I said, sure, you know, how much do you want to pay for this video? And I believe it was like $150 for a 30-second cat video. And I said, sure, here's my PayPal. When we get paid, you can have the video. And I, I still did not believe it was real. I figured it was going to be a scam. They'd never pay up. But a couple of days later, they paid us 150 bucks, and I gave them the cat video. That definitely was the penny drop. That was the moment that I thought, wait a second, you know, if someone will pay money for this 30-second cat video, what about these other videos that we have already made that we, you know, maybe these would be profitable. And so literally just went online, did a search for, you know, how to sell porn online, how to get into pornography and Pornhub showed up because at that time they were the world's biggest, you know, conglomerate of, of porn online. At the time, again, they made it very easy to get online. You created an account, you sent in your identification and the identification of your performer. And the same day you could start posting videos online for revenue. They still don't, but at that time, they really didn't tell you how the system works. And so we posted our videos on our Pornhub page, and we thought, you know, great, the money will start rolling in tomorrow. And no, it really doesn't. It takes a very long time to get any money once you start posting things online, unless you're exceptionally lucky. So for us, you know, we started seeing our videos getting views and they got 10,000 views and then 20,000 views and 30,000 views. And we figured that we'd be getting a big check in the mail any day now. And we didn't. <laughs> we didn't get anything for a very long time to the point where we kind of stopped checking because, you know, we went from checking the site every day to see how many views we got to checking it once a week and then once a month and then pretty much just forgot about it. You know, it was a, it felt like a failed experiment because we were getting, you know, I think we had over a hundred thousand views and we still hadn't gotten any money from Pornhub. So we kind of thought, well, I guess it just doesn't work very well. And then one day I got a notice saying that there was a deposit in our account and it was for $105. It was not a lot. And I thought, wow, we finally got paid. And with that, with that amount of money based on our views, it was easy to figure out that, okay, you do get paid, but you get paid a tiny fraction of a cent per view. 
and at the time it was 0.00037 cents per click. And it takes a lot of clicks. I think at that time it took about 140,000 clicks to get $100, somewhere around there. I know that that may be different now. I don't know exactly what the pay-per-click is. And I also know that certain videos with different ratings and genres earn more money, etc. It's fairly Byzantine. And none of the um, online porn sites are very transparent about how they do this. The other thing with Pornhub is, is that until you reach that $100 threshold, you do not get paid. So it may take you three months to get there. You might have earned $20 the first month and $60 the second month. And eventually, once you clear that $100 hurdle, then you get paid. So it's very smart for them. They get a lot of free content because most of the videos on Pornhub never reach that $100 limit, that 140,000 or 150,000 views that they need to get paid. So they're very smart about how they set that limit. For us, once we got paid, we decided to kind of give it another try. We decided to look at our videos, see which ones had the most views and lean into that curve. And it was very clear for us that the sensual videos we had posted had almost no views, but the one fairly rough video we posted had all the views. It had like 90% of our views. And that made it very clear to us that, oh, well, we need to post more rough content, which was fine because both me and my partner really enjoyed genuinely rough content between ourselves. We would have done it even if we weren't filming. But we, we learned very quickly that for us, what sold was rough content. And the more rough we made that content, the better it sold. So we started putting out more rough videos. We started leaning into that niche. And then one day we got really lucky and we got featured. And getting featured in Pornhub means that your video shows up on the landing page, on the home page. And that is a huge bonus because you'll go from getting 100,000 views on a video to getting several million views on a video. Even if people don't like it, having that exposure on the front page will skyrocket your views. And so, yeah, overnight we went from getting you know, 100,000, 200,000 views on a video to getting several million views on one video. That has the added knock-on effect of Pornhub will display your other videos underneath your video. So if you get something on the front page, you get a lot more eyeballs on it. You get a lot more eyeballs on your other content. And so for a while, every month, we started making more and more on Pornhub. Again, these were still two and $300 checks. This was not a lot of money. It was not enough that either one of us could not work or not have another job and just do pornography. But as that snowball started to roll, we started getting to the point where we did realize that, oh, if we can make a little bit more, this could be a job. This could be something we do full time. And we went along that glide path into the point where eventually it was enough. There was enough money coming in from Pornhub by itself that that was enough to pay the bills. That was enough to pay rent. That was enough to buy groceries and that it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough. And it seemed like things would just keep going up. Now, what I wish I had known then is that I should have diversified. And I've thought about that and I try to put that message out there as much as I can. You cannot put all of your eggs in one basket. Now, part of that was because 
When we signed up for Pornhub, we clicked a checkbox saying that we would only upload to Pornhub and that that would give us an extra 10% on our revenue. So they kind of try to keep you in that system. And that system was working well for us. And it didn't seem like it would be a good idea to go spread out and try to get our stuff on other platforms and diversify. In hindsight, obviously that was a big mistake and we should have done that. But none of us saw what happened in December, I guess two years ago, when the major credit card companies stopped servicing Pornhub. And right before that happened, we had reached a peak where we were making quite a bit of money every month from the videos that we had on Pornhub, enough that you know, it was a good income and I was very happy with that. To recap, I kind of eased into it. I was still having to do odd jobs and still having to do as much as I could do on my own without doing porn to the point where I was able to make enough money from porn that I didn't have to have another job. And it, it took about a year or two to get to that point. So just gradually it happened. And then I started doing really well. And then the credit card companies stopped servicing Pornhub. Our revenue dropped I want to say 80% overnight, probably a bit more than that. We went from selling videos and having huge amounts of, you know, revenue from Pornhub, not huge, good amounts of revenue from Pornhub, to having almost nothing. Because one of the things that Pornhub did after the credit card company stopped servicing them was they went back and they started, you know, getting rid of all of their really rough content, which is what we made. So all of our videos that were very successful and doing very well on Pornhub got removed from the site overnight. We lost like over half, I want to say like 60% of our videos disappeared and they were all of our top earners. And the only thing that was left were our sensual videos, which never got a lot of views. So that was a big shock. And long-term listeners of this podcast will remember when we went through all that and how desperate we were because we went from doing great to essentially losing our job overnight. And we've been trying to build back ever since. After that happened, I did diversify as fast as I could. And I got our content up on the other sites. That has replaced our income to an extent. I'm still trying to push out more content to those sites and get it running. This is moving more into the business side of things and out of how I got started. But this question comes from people who I feel like are interested, A, in how I got started, but also considering getting started themselves. And... You know, I'll say it's not easy to get started. It can be a long road to go from doing it for fun to doing it part-time to doing it full-time. That can take years. And then you do need to diversify. You need to make sure that you're not putting all of your stuff on one site, that you're not relying on one site for all of your income. You really should spread it out across multiple sites so that if one goes down or changes their policy, you don't lose all your income overnight like we did. So yeah, that's how I got started in porn. Hopefully, in the next few months, I can post another podcast about how we built back up from the very bottom again. But we're not there yet. We're really struggling to get enough to balance and make things work again. So we'll see. All the issues that we had with Pornhub really put a damper on creating new content. Because, you know, for example, flying a model out and hosting them and making content with them and getting them back home is very expensive. And if I don't have the revenue coming in, it can be difficult to put that revenue out. The other side is just the discouraging factor of Pornhub, but also the other sites not really being comfortable with kinky BDSM or rough content 
to the extent that they used to be. They don't feature it. They don't promote it. And it's very hard for me to put the work and time and effort into putting out new content that I don't think will generate revenue coming back. I'm sure that if I did put out a lot more content, we could probably start getting some more traction. I just need to get the drive and initiative I have to have to get that content out there, promote it, upload it, create it, edit it, produce it. It's a lot of work. It's just like these podcasts. It takes a lot longer than you think to produce a 15-minute porn video. But I do want to get new content out there. For those of you who have been asking repeatedly, where's the new content? It will come. Life keeps throwing us curveballs, and every time we seem to get back on our feet, we get hit with another unexpected thing. You know, I talked about last week, Katya and I are in still kind of a state of limbo, and hopefully that will be resolved. I hope to give you guys an update next week. I did talk about that in the Patreon update. If you're wondering exactly what's going on, that that content is out there if you want to look for it. But I do appreciate you guys stopping by. I do look forward to doing this, and I miss it when I don't get a chance to record. As always, consent is king. Take very good care of each other, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>